You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institute, as well as an economic demographer. He was formerly an economic advisor to the Russian parliament, the Central Bank of Russia, and the Russian government on several policy projects in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union, and remains a regular commentator on the Russian economy. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Michael Bernstein. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Uh, well, I'm uh, doing research on economic history, economic demography, economic development all over the world with some focus on Russia, post-central plan economies, asking big, big questions, trying to find answers, yes. Okay, so I wanted to start off by asking about the Russia-Ukraine situation, which I'm sure our audience will be extremely interested to get your perspective on. Um, so the war has been going on for almost six months with over a thousand multinational businesses now having pulled out of Russia. So we've all heard reports of escalating GDP contraction, but few people actually know the full extent of the effects. So can you tell us a bit about the impact that the sanctions over the past few months have had on the trajectory of the war? Uh, the most important thing is that uh, the contraction, which started as a mild contraction uh, in March uh, 2022, is now in the full decline and acceleration, and it's go going to be the Great Depression. So for the first uh, half year uh, of uh, 2022, it was a mild contraction, and now it is 4%, and uh, uh, for the second quarter of 2022, uh, then it is expected to accelerate and become uh, 7% uh, in the third and fourth quarter, and uh, for 2023, the cumulative contraction will be about 11-12%. Uh, uh, this is lower than previous estimates, but the important thing is that we the length of the contraction, because every year lost is every year lost of income and welfare and well-being of population. And there is no recovery expected until 2025, if then, because Russia uh, is becoming sort of technologically going backward, which is a very, very rare situation in the global economy and economic development. And that is because they focused mostly in the last 30 years on the development of the energy sector and natural resources. And now they are losing Western technology because of all the boycotts and uh, embargoes and uh, sanctions. And so uh, this is a case where you may have, uh, uh, to use the phrase, uh, now it's popular, secular, uh, secular stagnation. No, it is a secular depression or secular decline, which is maybe going on until the change in economic policy and maybe the change in uh, the political system. Okay, so next I wanted to ask about the Russian economy and the people more broadly. So it's often easy to forget that behind the sanctions, there are tens of millions of ordinary people who are actually facing this brunt, you know, of the, the depression, like you, you said. So given all the international sanctions aren't likely to go away anytime soon, what impact could that have on the future Russian economy? 
Um, are we likely to see a return to Soviet-style isolation? And if so, what would that mean for everyday people? Well, by default, already it's uh, it's an isolation because they are trying to engage in import substitution. Once they don't have spare parts for their industrial plant and equipment, uh, for their energy sector, even for their agriculture. Even their agriculture turns out that uh, the remarkably uh, is dependent by 90%, I don't know one knew it, uh, by 90% dependent on uh, foreign inputs because uh, the best seeds, the best uh, livestock, uh, livestock material, and of course the best machines are Western machines because they didn't develop anything on their own. The fact is, it's remarkable if you compare Russia and China. Russia and China. In the last 30 years, Russia has not developed a single new industry, has not developed a single new technological instrument, a single new technological advancement. They all focused on traditional old industries such as energy and metals and agriculture, and they have not developed technologically. If you look at small Estonia, they developed Skype, which is used all over the world. If you look at any country, they diversify and uh, they have technological, uh, some kind of uh, technological development. The Russians are now buying uh, technology from what? From Turkey, from Iran, which are not the highly developed countries. So Russia is remarkable in this respect. And with the fall of these imports uh, now, uh, they will have uh, years ahead of uh, technological and uh, economic decline. Okay, so um, what what might this mean for the everyday people? You know, if you're, say, uh, an average citizen living in Russia, what's likely to happen to your life if this keeps this, oh, this war keeps dragging on? That's an excellent question because uh, people, <laughs> that's what I will say now, it's kind of a bit paradoxical. Uh, Usually people look when they talk about uh, recessions, depressions, contractions, they look at GDP gross uh, uh, or GNI, uh, GNI, gross national income or GDP gross domestic product and we're saying, oh, 4% decline, 10% decline. In this situation, it's not as important because you can still produce a lot of stuff which will be exported to all over the world, like uh, oil and natural gas. And uh, uh, then uh, uh, with the decline of imports, you have a huge surplus uh, in the current account. And uh, uh, the GDP, as long as production continues, doesn't look as bad. But with the decline of imports, consumption declines, investment declines. So if now the GDP, uh, if now, the GDP consists of consumption and investment and net export and uh, and consumption is sufficiently good and uh, investment is good, net, net export is small, it's one picture. When you have a huge net export, the excess of exports over imports, oil is produced, natural gas is produced, sold all over the world to the uh, uh, third world countries, China and India, but imports decline, and then you will have decline in consumption and decline in uh, investment, that's decline of human welfare. That's what it is. So the GDP contraction does not capture 
the extent of the impact on people. And some estimates made by the European University Institute and other European Union uh, organizations show that over the years, the contraction will be 15%. But with addition of the decline of imports, the uh, total loss of well-being, total loss of welfare will be 24%. And this is huge because this is uh, compared with the Great Depression in the United States. Okay, um, so next I wanted to, to ask that given, you know, you were an advisor to the Russian Central Bank for many years following the collapse of the USSR, um, I, I want to ask about the implications for the Russian financial system. So after the war broke out, Russia was promptly cut off from the international banking system and the Russian ruble plummeted. However, we've seen the ruble appreciate sharply against the dollar in the past few weeks, even higher than pre-war levels. So can you give us a sense of what's going on with the Russian currency in these volatile forex fluctuations? So the sanctions on the Russian Central Bank, uh, which started on February the 27th, February the 28th, and I advised on them, uh, they cut off the Russian Central Bank from Russian foreign exchange reserves. So people say they're frozen. The assets exist. The Russians own them. Own them. They own them, but they don't control them. They don't have access to them. $388 billion are cut off from Russian foreign exchange reserves. So the impact of this kind of shock on the financial system is threefold. Short, medium, and long. The short one is what you described, the first hit on the, uh, on the currency, on the foreign exchange, and the uh, exchange rate. The exchange rate declined. Immediately, the Russian Central Bank made, uh, and the government made the national currency, the ruble, non-convertible. The currency is non-convertible, so the exchange rate is meaningless because you cannot purchase foreign exchange. So it's meaningless. The capital flight nonetheless exists within the limits, and now... The capital flight is huge, and uh, uh, the uh, central bank data suggests that uh, the foreign uh, banks' uh, holdings, deposits of Russian nationals, used to be $31 billion, now it is $43 billion. In addition to that, the Russian central bank is saying that the Russians are holding foreign exchange cash dollars, banknotes, dollars, euros, mostly dollars, American dollars, they hold at home under the mattresses. So it used to be traditionally $60 billion because they don't trust their banking system and prefer Western cash that individuals can control. And now the central bank is saying it is $85 billion. So it is an escape from the national currency, which is not reflected in the data on the exchange rates. So the exchange rate collapsed, but it is not reflected in the official exchange rate because it is not convertible. The second effect is on the banking system. It is bank failures. The banks are bankrupt because they have uh, foreign exchange liabilities to uh, uh, juridical persons, to natural persons, to enterprises, to companies, to individuals, but they cannot uh, uh, honor them because they have no foreign exchange. And so uh, uh, the, uh, they forcibly convert them into rubles, so people can withdraw, companies can withdraw, but in rubles and not in dollars and euros, and uh, British pounds. So uh, in this effect, uh, the central bank has to use, will use whatever foreign exchange they have and can purchase from and, uh, from Russian oil and uh, natural gas companies to bail out the serial bailouts 
of Russian banks. It's kind of under uh, under the radar. You cannot see it, but it exists, and you can deduce it from the central bank data. And the third effect, which already started, is uh, the breakup of the supply chains because uh, they cannot get inputs what they need, and they cannot purchase uh, uh, foreign uh, uh, technology. And so one after another, major industries start to contract and start to break down as they have to cannibalize airplanes to take spare parts to repair other airplanes. They cannot use, uh, uh, they have to produce uh, some uh, uh, vehicles, cars without certain uh, important, without airbags and whatnot. They cannot get uh, uh, all sorts of gadgets. So this is kind of a long-term effect which affects the economy. And for, for the people, it is the reduction in their living standards and the reduction of the quality of life. Take medicines. They cannot have surgical instruments. They cannot, they cannot have critical drugs and medicines. So it is tragic. Okay. And finally, with regards to Russia, I wanted to ask about the, the sanctions. Um, so, you know, we've seen, we've seen sanctions from pretty much, you know, all of North America, Western Europe, um, you know, all, all over the world, really, um, that, that have, you know, been extremely punitive, cut off Russia, um, you know, from basically all trade, the, the, the banking system, the financial system, you know, every, every single possible avenue. Um, however, there's been a lot of debate about these, these, um, um, sanctions because you know a lot of people say well they don't really target the people they tar uh, sorry they don't really target the the political elite you know it's not targeting Putin it's not targeting the oligarchs um, you know the main people that that's affecting are the ordinary you know day to day citizens so it's making their life difficult and it doesn't really affect the political class um, so can you tell us a bit about you know the the sanctions that's going on what you think about you know the, the sort of um, environment that that we've created. Uh, this is not a question to an economist who deals with accounting, national income accounting. This is a question for a moral philosopher. Uh, every war, forget about sanctions for a moment, think of war. Sometimes there are necessary wars for against uh, some enemy who threatens uh, the security of uh, countries. Uh, so, wars... They're bad. They affect people. Uh, people, uh, cities are bombed, villages are bombed, people are killed, innocent people, totally innocent people. Sanctions are the same way. They're not maybe as deadly, although they uh, affect the health sector and they uh, reduce the quality of life and eventually they reduce life expectancy. And so we can see the effect of sanctions on the demographic data and life expectancy reduction and mortality increase. Uh, sanctions are the same way. Yes, they do affect people because... They initially, their kind of intent, their uh, uh, objective is to reduce the military capacity. But by reducing the economic capacity, they affect people. So it's a moral choice. It's not uh, an economist can calculate uh, what the effect will be. And uh, then it is a question to politicians and moral philosophers to say, is it worth it or is it not worth it? Uh, maybe it's a question for uh, religious thinkers. It's kind of not uh, not my domain. Okay, um, fair enough. So I, I did want to switch gears a bit and also talk about some of your more current research. Um, so as I understand it, the big theme that you've been focusing on for quite a while now is income transfers as an impediment to long-run economic growth. 
Now, you know, I'm a, 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 I'm a free market libertarian. I grew up reading Milton Friedman and Hayek. So this, this premise sort of seems like a no brainer. Um, but there are some interesting case studies that you use to, to talk about and prove this thesis, starting with the great divergence in economic growth between Western market economies, including the Asian followers and the rest of the world. So can you tell us a bit about the role that income transfers played in this divergence? Uh, sure. Uh, we have very big questions uh, in front of us, and some of them are not even asked. Uh, uh, for example, uh, the big question which the economists study for centuries, uh, uh, starting even before Adam Smith, is why some countries are rich and some countries are poor. And if we take uh, the end of the 20th century, uh, we can use a very simple empirical uh, yardstick I use, that I propose it, that we take the double level of the average uh, uh, gross national income per capita in 1990 or in 2000, and the double separates clearly, separates rich and poor countries, all Western market economies, with no exception. Uh, maybe in 1990, South Korea was not there yet, but it caught up quickly. Every Western market economy is above the double of the average, and it is the same thing today, the double of the average of uh, uh, gross national income per capita. All other countries are below the double. Uh, today, if you look at the data, the World Bank just issued the data uh, at purchasing power parity for 2021, and the world average is about 19,000 plus, so close to $20,000. All Western market economies are above 40,000. And uh, all other economies are below 40,000. So that's the level, income level can easily be uh, distinguished. Rich countries, poor countries. And uh, there are lots of poor countries that are thousand uh, uh, $1,000 to $1,000 per capita today. And the rich countries are uh, uh, over $50,000 per capita. So that's one division. But there is another division. And the division between the development level. So if you judge economic development, let's say again, the yardstick I propose empirically, the economic development level by whether it is more than 25% of the economy uh, produces gross national income or gross domestic product GDP. Uh, if it is uh, more, uh, less than 25% in agriculture, it is a developed economy. If it is more than 25% in agriculture, it is less developed economy. And then you see a strange paradox. Look at 1990 again. I take 1990 because at the end of central planning. China ended central planning in 1977. And uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union, all the Soviet countries of the former Soviet Union and former Yugoslavia and all Eastern European countries ended central planning. So you can take uh, the world at that time. And you will see that in addition to this uh, division between rich and poor countries, you have actually a strong division uh, between developed and uh, less developed countries, that lots of countries, former central plan economies, and during their time of central planning, they were developed. They were technological developed. They had uh, less than 25% of GDP produced in agriculture. They were industrial countries, but they were not as rich as Western developed economies. But because being developed and being industrial, they were better off and more and more richer than less developed economies. So you have 
unfortunately, a situation where this kind of rich and poor countries doesn't cut uh, because you have industrial countries that are not rich. And the situation is that if you look at the world in 1990 or in 2000, after the end of central planning, you will see not two groups of countries, rich and poor, Western market economies and the less developed economies. You see three groups of countries, Western market economies, industrial central plan economies or former industrial central plan economies, and then you have less developed economies and uh, uh, countries uh, 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 that were non-industrial central plan economies. So you have a tripartite, three parts. And remember how it was during the Cold War when they said the first world, the second world, and the third world. The same division applies to economic development. So the question is, why? Why is that that uh, uh, industrial central plan economies are actually more developed than less developed? It's an embarrassing question. They Central planning is bad, but they were more developed than less developed economies and not as rich as former center, as uh, Western market economies. So you have a kind of three groups of countries. And then the next question is, after the end of central planning, why is that that China rapidly had spectacular growth? It started with less than $2,000 per capita uh, income, and now it is about 20000 in today's dollars. $20,000, so slightly above the world average. So 10 times increase a remarkable 10 times increase in the standard of living in 40 years. Whereas Russia, Russia experienced a great contraction in the 90s after the end of central planning, 44%, 44% decline in GDP in Russia in the 90s, compared with the United States during the Great Depression, 29%. So it's kind of 50% more than the Great Depression, 1.5 times of the Great Depression. The former is Germany, had all the best institutions introduced by the former West Germany. The monetary policy was great because it was the central Bundesbank. What can be better than the Bundesbank? Technology transfer, all the subsidies, everything. And the former East Germany collapsed. The former East Germany lost 22% of uh, uh, their GDP. Uh, and the uh, standard of living increased only by the subsidies from the former West Germany. The former West Germany transferred 1.5 trillion euros in today's money, 1.5 trillion euros, to bail out the former East Germany. So then there is a problem there. And the problem is that technological development by itself, institutions by themselves, and uh, anything else that free markets by themselves, they don't explain it. Uh, they don't explain it. It's former East Germany became a free market economy. Uh, Russia is more free market than China. China is not exactly a free market economy. So I say that uh, we have to look at the incentives and we find, without any exceptions, that subsidies and bailouts and income transfers from producer to non-producers, they kill productive incentives. You need productive incentives to implement technology. Whatever technological development is there, it is global now. Any country can be rich, and uh, nonetheless, not every country is rich. It is easy to take foreign technology and produce it into domestic productions, implement it, apply its application, and not every country does it. 
So, incentives are broken. There is no other reason for countries not be as rich as many other countries except for uh, poor incentives. And these incentives have to do with, uh, uh, that's why I focus on income transfers, because subsidies and bailouts, which are prevalent in many economies, they are killing productive incentives. That's the problem. Okay, so another another interesting observation you talk about is how 20th century industrial centrally planned economies performed worse than Western market economies, I think, that we just discussed, but better than less developed economies. So just intuitively, if I think back, an industrial economy, um, you know, at the time, like the Soviet Union, was definitely worse off than the U.S. or Western Europe but still better than, say, a country like Rwanda or Sudan, you know, less developed uh, third world um, economies. So how does this connect back to your central idea of income transfers? Yeah, not just Rwanda and Sudan. Rwanda and Sudan are easy examples, but uh, they were better off than Turkey, than Argentina, than South Africa. So the richest and the best developed among the less developed economies. So uh, that's the problem. And that the problem that, uh, the, uh, that there are two sets of incentives. One is incentives for technological development. And if you look at the uh, indices of technological development, which take into account uh, the share of research and development in GDP and uh, the research institutes and uh, the number of scientists and engineers and the publications and the patents which are internationally recognized and put it all together, you will find that technologically Russia or the Soviet Union at the time, Poland, the former East Germany, uh, the former Czechoslovakia, the former Yugoslavia, uh, they were on par with Western market economies. They produced a lot, well, in the space race, the Soviet Union was ahead for a while, ahead of the Western world. So generally, they produced a lot of technological development and had incentives for technological development. But people don't eat technology. People don't close with technology. The technology doesn't produce shelter. Technology is just ideas of science and technology, which has to be applied to regular production of material goods and services. And that's where they had a deficiency. And that's how being more technologically developed than less developed economies, they did not produce provide incentives to produce regular goods and services. And that's how they fell behind Western market economies. Okay. And the final empirical observation you talk about is how post-central plan economies like China achieved high economic growth while Russia, the former East Germany, and other such countries experienced major contractions and lackluster recoveries. So can you tell us a bit about your findings as to what's going on here? Uh, China doesn't practice bailouts. China is not a free market economy, but it is an economy with very low income transfers. China let their financial companies and their industrial companies fail if needed, because China is very careful about their fiscal position and delegates a lot, fiscal federalism delegates a lot to the provinces, and the provinces don't want to finance the failing enterprises. The former East Germany received a huge subsidy and bailout from the former West Germany, and that's uh, kind of did not, uh, uh, was not conducive to their economic uh, development until 
the industry started to move to the, from the west to the east because it was cheaper. And Russia was a country of bailouts and uh, financial defaults in the 90s. And that's how, again, uh, 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 it uh, produced uh, the greatest contract, the greatest peacetime contraction in the history of humankind, 44% of contract, uh, contraction of GDP. So generally what, what I'm saying that uh, subsidies and bailouts corrupt corrupt not in the primitive sense, but they corrupt productive incentives because they are the opportunity cost. If you can get something for nothing, you produce nothing. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Bernstein. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.